Hello, and welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. 400 years ago this week, after two previous unsuccessful attempts, the Mayflower left Plymouth, England. It will take three months to cross the Atlantic Ocean. Lead teacher Jeff Norris starts the new series, Exodus, with this sermon entitled, The Nearness of God, which covers Exodus chapters 1 and 2. For more information and to watch or hear other messages, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. Let me pray, and we'll jump into this awesome, awesome book of Exodus. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this time. Lord, we give it to you. We ask you to bless it. We ask you to, um, to soften our hearts and to give us the ability to hear from you, your living and active word. Lord, would you teach us, shape us, make us more into your image, uh, convict us where we need to be convicted, encourage us where we need to be encouraged. But most of all, Lord, may we see you, O oh Jesus, the one in whom our soul delights. May we delight in you as we open your word this morning. Would you do it for your glory, O oh God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I mentioned uh, numerous times now, we're, we're going to start a series on the book of Exodus. It'll be a nine-week series that will uh, carry us deep into the fall. And uh, we, not the fall, Genesis 3, but autumn. I think you knew what I was meaning there. Um, but uh, it's going to be a great series. The book of Exodus, you, you may not have been in or around church very much in your life, but chances are you probably know that you've got Genesis as the first book and then Exodus comes right behind it. And so uh, what we want to do is we want to take this really long book. We're not going to cover all of it in this series. We're going to get through chapter 19 in this series, and then we're going to do a part two in 2021 that will carry us through the rest of the book. We won't be able to hit every single verse, every single passage, but we're going to try our very best to give you uh, the significant chunks and the highlights, if you will, that will help give you an understanding of what God is doing in the book of Exodus. One of the things we're going to see in this book is we're going to see two things primarily that God does in this, in this narrative. One, we're going to see that the, the central theological theme of the book of Exodus is God's heart for the nations. Him revealing himself in such a way that he's not just a God for the Hebrews, for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the descendants of those patriarchs, but also the God of all nations. As he begins to show the, the progression and the trajectory of his covenant. Another thing we're going to see as he does that is we're going to see that he also is revealing more about himself, not only in his missionary heart as the God of the universe, but also in who he is, in his nature, in his character. Something to think about is this. In the book of Genesis, we learn a lot about God. We learn a great deal about our God. We see that he's a God who is faithful, that we, are, we see that he's a God who is a covenant-keeping God. We see that he's a God who called this man Abraham, uh, this pagan man who was living in this land far away called Ur, and he calls him unto himself, and he, he says, I want you to come, and I want you to sojourn in a foreign land, and I'm going to be your God, and I'm going to bless you, Abraham. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you the father of a great nation, and through you, 
Through your offspring, Abraham, all nations will be blessed. So we're seeing the missionary heart of God even in Genesis chapter 12 where he's saying that to Abram. But then what we're going to see is that as, as that develops, the covenant continues with Isaac, Abraham's son, with Jacob, Isaac's son. Jacob, who's very undeserving of the covenant, if you might remember the story. And then through Jacob, Jacob, his name is changed to Israel after he wrestles with God. And Jacob has 12 sons. And one of the sons of Jacob that the scriptures tell us was his favorite, which gives you an idea of why Jacob was undeserving of God's faithful covenant because Jacob played favorites. And his favorite was Joseph. You may, may or may not remember the story. Again, even if you haven't been in or around church, you may know that there's this character in the Bible named Joseph, and he had this coat of many colors. And part of the story is that Joseph's brothers hated him. They were jealous of him. And so they sold him into slavery. And where does he end up as a result of being sold into slavery? He ends up in, uh, as a slave, as a prisoner, as a captive in the strongest, most powerful empire the world knew at that point, the Egyptian kingdom. And it's there that God's favor is upon Joseph, the son of Jacob. And it's there that Joseph, this foreigner, rises to the top of this kingdom, second in command. But in all practical purposes, the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, was a figurehead. Who ran the kingdom? It was this Hebrew, Joseph. And through a various number of circumstances, I would encourage you to read Genesis 37 through 50. You see the whole story, but through a number of circumstances, through famine and through the providence of God, Joseph and all his brothers who hated him and his father Jacob, who's very elderly at this time, are brought to Egypt through the benevolence and the kindness and the grace and the goodness of Joseph, who is foreshadowing a true and better Joseph who would come. And one of the things that Joseph does is he, he gives the best land to his family, the family that had abandoned him and hated him, his brothers. And he says, I forgive you, but not only do I forgive you, but I bestow upon you all the greatness of what I can give you. Does that sound familiar? That God would be a God who doesn't just forgive us, but he bestows upon us all the greatness, i.e. the righteousness that's not due us, but he gives it to us anyway. That's what Joseph does with his brothers. And so they're so sojourning in this land now, the most fertile part of Egypt. Scholars think that that happened, that, that continued for about 30 years. For about 30 years, uh, Joseph and his family that numbered about 70 people Continually, with each year becoming more and more as they multiplied, experienced the, the goodness of the land and the favor of God in the land of Egypt for about 30 years. And then Joseph dies, and the king, the Pharaoh of Egypt, dies. A new king comes to be, and not long later, what comes to pass is what God promised Abraham all the way back in Genesis chapter 15. He promised Abraham, he said, I'm going to make you the father of great nations. Through you, nations will be blessed. But I'll, I'll go ahead and tell you, Abraham, that your descendants, your people, the generations after you, they are going uh, to sojourn in a foreign land, and they are going to be afflicted for 400 years. 
So I give you all that background to say that's where we are in the story. Joseph has died. There has been 400 years of quote-unquote silence where we have not heard from God and his people have not heard from him. There's no indication that God has been active during this time. Uh, There is no indication that God has been speaking during this time. But 400 years of God's people being in slavery in Egypt, being in bondage in Egypt, And God is nowhere to be found, at least according to them. Can you imagine, by the way? I mean, just try to think about it. We we often throw out numbers, like when we're, even when we're reading the Bible, we throw out numbers, and at least for me, I don't know if it's true for you, we, we don't really think about how long that really is in human experience. I mean, I I love American history. I love American history. I devour anything I can find on American history. And one of the things that I often feel with American history is that when I'm visiting an old place, I go, whoa, this is so old. How did they preserve this? Just a few summers ago, Rachel and I went to Boston. First time I'd ever been there. And we're touring the house of Paul Revere. And it's his house. And they've preserved a lot in it. And they're saying things like this was the desk, the very desk that he sat at. And this was the bed. We know this was his bed. And I'm just going, whoa. Really? Like, how did you preserve? How do you know? That's so old. And then you go, wait a second. Uh, we're coming up on like 250 years as a country. We're, we're, it's not that old. 400 years. Can you imagine what they felt? If we could, if we could get in a time machine, if we could go back to... 1300s BC or 1500s BC, somewhere there's debate among scholars, people way smarter than me, that exactly what, what century did this event, the Exodus, take place in. But if we could go back there with Doc and Marty, okay, follow me, and we could be in that place and we could walk up to a Hebrew who is there uh, in this part, let's say in the, uh, it's been 350 years of slavery at this point. And he doesn't know or she doesn't know that there's 50 more years to go. Maybe they don't remember, and I'm going to make the argument here in a moment that they don't, what God had said previously. What's going to be their felt experience? They're going to say something like this. If we were to ask them, hey, tell me about the God of Israel, your God, you're probably going to hear something like this. Oh, yeah, um, yeah, I, I I can't tell you much. I mean, he's this God that was there for our ancestors way back when, but man, we hadn't seen or heard from him in a while. He's not here for us. I I don't know. I can't tell you a whole lot. Now, there were some, as we'll see in the text today, that at least knew enough about God that they knew that there was a God to be feared and there was a God that is out there that had been faithful to, uh, to generations past. And so we think and believe and trust by faith that he's still around. But I'm gonna, I'm gonna tell you something. I am convinced, and what we're gonna see in, cha- in Exodus chapters one and two is uh, these are a people that are not calling out to God. They're calling out, but they're not calling out to God. And I think it's because they've forgotten Joseph and they've forgotten Joseph's God. They know something of him, but they don't know him because their circumstances are telling them something is true about God that in reality isn't true of him. But can you blame them? Have you ever known someone, 
that uh, you thought you knew something about them and you thought you knew them pretty well, but then after you've known them a really long time, they reveal something about themselves and you go, dude, why haven't you told me that? That's pretty unbelievable. I went to high school with this guy named Daniel. Daniel was brilliant. Daniel's still alive, so I should say Daniel is brilliant. When I knew him back then, he was brilliant. He was valedictorian of our class. He, he was so smart. I mean, the, the guy was one of those guys that drives you crazy because he never studied at all and made like 110s on everything, if that were possible. He was brilliant. Now, I, I hung out with Daniel a lot, and I, I, I thought I knew Daniel pretty well. We went to Alabama together in college. I, I knew the guy, but it wasn't until our 20th anniversary, our, our, our reunion, uh, a few years ago when I'm hanging out with Daniel, and he starts telling me about what he's doing now. And what he's doing now is he's living in LA and he's become this incredibly successful, nationally renowned, and even now getting worldwide attention for the type of art that he does. He calls it a continuous, one continuous line art, where he takes a pencil, a pen, a brush, whatever he's using, and he never takes it off the paper. And he draws these incredible designs and all around to where when you finish, you're looking at an incredible portrait of a person or a landscape or something, and you start looking at it and you go, that's, that's, that's all one line. It's amazing. And I'm telling Daniel, how did I never, I never knew you were artistic. I respected you before, I admired you before, but wow, this is next level, dude. It's a little bit of what's happening in the book of Exodus. God had revealed himself in Genesis. We know a lot about God, but there is going to be a revealing of God in the book of Exodus to his people that we go, wow. And it's primarily centered on something that they didn't know about him yet. They had not seen yet that their God is a redeemer. He's a rescuer. He's not just a God of power. He's not just a God of providence. He's a redeemer. Here's some things I want you to see in the text today. That even when our circumstances yell at us something about God, here's what we have to know about who God is. And it comes straight from Exodus 1 and 2. The first one is, well, let me give you what we're going to land on at the end, and then I'll give you the four points. Here's where we're going to land at the end, straight from the text. God is a God who hears. He hears us. Even when our circumstances tell us differently. God is a God who remembers He remembers his covenant. God is a God who sees. Some of you need to hear that this morning. He sees you. You may be convinced that he doesn't see you. The scriptures remind us that he does. And most importantly, God is a God who knows. He knows. He knows you. He knows me better than we know ourselves. And so in that vein, let me give you four things to believe about the God who is at work in all circumstances. The first one in chapter one, right off the bat, is that God is at work in the silence. God is at work in the silence. So 400 years of slavery. I've already talked about what must they have been feeling, the abandonment that if there is a God, he's certainly not near. He's not close. He's not interceding on our behalf. But if you go back, God has been at work in all of those years that seemed like they were silent. 
And one of the ways that he's been at work, we actually get a nod towards in the very few first verses of chapter one of Exodus. It says this, it says, these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. And then it lists the, the sons of Jacob. It says that there were 70 persons who went with him to Egypt. Then it says in verse six, then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But look at verse seven, listen. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now you may read that and go, okay, they multiplied. Do you know that's fulfillment of God's promise? That he's assuring them, hey, I've been at work in the midst of all this. If you go back to, even to the very beginning of creation, Genesis 1.28, this was a verse that was really significant in our series that we just finished on, on the image of God. If you go back and you, and you begin to think about, okay, what was it that Jesus, that God said immediately after creating man and woman? He said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Subdue it, have dominion over it. So even in the midst of all the silence, God is doing through his people what he put them on earth to do, to be fruitful, to multiply. Now, it's broken. It's not perfect. They're slaves. They can't subdue the earth and have dominion over it the way that God intended. But God is fulfilling his promise. God is at work even in the silence. God is doing something even when they don't realize that he is. God had promised, as I referred to earlier, earlier that you're going to be a great nation, Abraham. And he said the same thing to Jacob in Genesis 35. He said, hey, it's going to be through you that you have a great nation. And so that's happening. God is at work even in the silence. He's up to not just, he's not just doing the work. He's up to a good work. Which makes me think of Romans 8, 28. Popular verse in the Bible that many of us, if we're Christians, we probably know this one, that God works all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. That's a verse that we cling to. That's a verse that we latch onto and say, yes, oh God, make that true in my life. And it's not just a plea, it's a promise that he will do that, that he does work all things together for good. And he's doing that even in what you and I experience to be silenced from him. And here's part of the issue, too. When we read something like Romans 8.28, and when we read that he works all things together for good, we have to remember that we don't get to define for God what good is. Because here's what you and I want to do. We want to define good as being central to the way I define good. We want to define good as primarily centered on my ease and my comfort. That if God is being good to me, he's making things in my life work. If he's being good to me, he's making things in my life experientially and circumstantially better. But what we see throughout the entire progression of Scripture over the whole landscape from Genesis to Revelation is that what God is often, most often doing as he's doing his good work, even in the midst of the silence, is he's actually drawing us into things that are hard that are not what we would have chosen for ourselves because God's definition of good in the scriptures is not my comfort and ease. It's his redemptive purposes for his glory as he's making me more like him. Don't miss that. It's his redemptive purposes for his glory as he's making me more like him. That's the good work of God in us. He is at work in the silence. Secondly, God is at work in the bitterness. 
as you keep reading through chapter one of Exodus, what begins to happen is you see that the, the, the Egyptians, particularly the king, the Pharaoh, is terrified of the Israelites. Look at verse 12, it says this. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad, and the, and the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service. Bitter. That's a word that I think a lot of us can get our heads around in 2020. Maybe, perhaps likely, that you and I have experienced bitterness in in ways that we haven't thus far in our lives. And maybe it's because of what we've experienced in 2020, but maybe it's because that life continues to happen in the broken world that we live in, and then you throw a pandemic on top of, a, on top of it, and we go, this is, more, this is more bitter than I could have ever imagined. There's still death that occurs outside of COVID being the cause. There's still loss of loved ones. There's still loss of jobs. There's still all kinds of things that are part of the broken world around us. And then you throw in the social unrest and then you throw in the pandemic and you go, this is too much. But God is at work in the bitterness. How do we see that at play in Exodus chapter one? Well, what happens is the king says, I'm terrified of these people who have become a great, mighty multitude of people. They're going to rise up against us unless we do something. So what does he do? He tells the midwives, the Hebrew midwives, every time you deliver a Hebrew baby boy, kill it. You'll see it in the text here. You'll see that they talk about this birthing stool. And and some of the research indicates that what this birthing stool was is it was this stool that as the baby is being delivered is immediately pressed into this this little bit of a a water, this, this, um, what am I trying to say, this inlet of a water kind of thing that was on a, on a piece of stone and you would wash the baby immediately. But what the king is most likely saying is that as the baby is birthed, drown it in the water so that no more males are born to the Hebrews. But God is at work because he was at work in the heart of these midwives, specifically two that were named in the text, probably the ones who were over all the Hebrew midwives. And even though they don't know much about their God, they fear this God of Joseph from long ago, and look at verse 17. It says, but the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So God continues to bless them and put his favor upon them. He's at work in the bitterness. Third thing, God is at work in the reeds. So what does that mean? Well, the king ratchets it up a notch And he says, the last verse of chapter one, he says, then the Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born. Now in your Bible, you may have like mine that it says every son that is born to the Hebrews. But you might also have a footnote that says in in many of the earlier manuscripts, the Hebrew manuscripts, to the Hebrews was not included. So there's belief by some that what he was saying was, okay, no longer am I just saying kill all the Hebrew sons, kill all the sons in all the land, Egyptians included. So he's he's ratcheting it up to say, we got to do something here, I'm so fearful. He says, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. So chapter two comes in and we go, okay, here's where the hope comes in. This is when the the rescuer comes and we were introduced to this baby. 
And there's a foreshadowing here that is pointing to another baby that would come that would be the rescuer. Don't miss that. But there's this baby who's born, and and the story goes, listen, it says, Now a man from the house of Levi went and took his wife, a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. Now a great text to read in conjunction with Exodus 1 and 2 is Acts chapter 7. This is the speech of Stephen when he was right before he was stoned to death, and he's recounting this story along with many of the progression, uh, the stories of the covenant progression throughout the Old Testament. He's recounting the story, and in this story, he gives us insight that where it says in here that the Hebrew mom of Moses saw that he was a fine child, Stephen says through the power of the Holy Spirit that God saw him as beautiful. And so here's what I think is going on here. I think what's going on here is that, uh, that through the Holy Spirit and his work that's going on in the midst of all this, that this Hebrew Levite woman is sensing from God that there's something significant about this child and there is no way I can obey the king's edict here. I can't. The, the, the Lord is uh, this God that I don't know much of, but he's there. There's something going on. I've got to hide this child. And so it says, that after she had hidden him for three months and could not hide him any longer because he's getting too big, he's crying too loud, it says that she put him in a basket and put him among the reeds of the Nile River. Now, do you remember, according to Pharaoh's edict, where are the babies being thrown? They're being thrown into the Nile. That's the place of death. I mean, just like, I, don't, I know it's hard, and I know we don't want to, but just try to visualize, imagine what that would have looked like, the evil, the insanity, that all these dead infants floating in the water because the king said to do that. And that's where she takes Moses, and she puts him in the reeds, and the reeds signify here, uh, that, wouldn't that be the last place you would want to take your baby that you want to hide and keep alive? You're going to put it on the doorstep of the place of death? Listen to what uh, Arthur W. Pink says. He says, Surely the parents of Moses took him to the very last spot which carnal reasoning would have suggested. The mother laid him in the flags, that's the reeds, by the river's bank. But that was the very place where the babies were drowned. Ah, is that not the last location we'd had chosen? Would not we have carried him as far away from the river as possible? In the opening verses of chapter 2, we have a lovely picture of salvation. The infant Moses was placed on the brink of the river, the place of death, the last spot we had selected. But then listen to what Pink says. He says, though Moses was brought to the place of death, he was made secure in the ark. And this speaks to us of Christ. And you go, okay, wait, hold on, ark, I didn't see that in my Bible. So the word for basket in your Bible, the the thing that Moses was put in is a Hebrew word that's used there and in only one other place in all of the Hebrew scriptures, and it's the account of Noah and the ark. Here's what I don't want you to miss. You've got to get this of what God is up to. He's at work in the reeds. Here's the point. Both accounts, Noah and the ark, Moses and the ark in this little basket, this is basically this wooden box it's, it's, it's the reality that both uh, signify the wrath of God in the form of water 
And the only thing in the surrounding, uh, enveloping wrath that is all around, the only thing that is preserving, the only thing that is hiding, but don't miss this, the only thing that is preserving and giving life is an ark in whom we are hidden. God's people anointed, the favor of God upon them, are put into this box, if you will, this place where they can hide to escape the wrath of God and thrive on the other end. That's what's happening in the story of Moses. That's what's happening in the story of Noah. That's what's happening in you, mine and your story. Because, listen, Colossians 3.3, I love this. Colossians 3.3 says this. This is post-Jesus. This is post-the-cross. He's made atonement for our sins. It says this. It says that you have now died, meaning you have now died in Christ if you've believed upon him. And then it says this, and now your life is hidden in Christ. He's the one who rescues us from the tumultuous enveloping waters of wrath all around us. And it's only in him. God is at work in the reeds. Oftentimes it's in the reeds of our lives. It's in the last place that we think God is gonna show up. It's in the, on the cusp of death and destruction itself that God intervenes and does only what he can do in working his redemptive purposes within us. God is at work in the reeds. Lastly, God is at work in the failure. Because Moses comes onto the scene, he's adopted by Pharaoh's daughter. She rescues him out of the reeds. Again, last person you would think would rescue. She brings him into his home, her home, and he's raised in the king's courts of Egypt. Now, in verse 10 of chapter 2, between verse 10 and verse 11 of your Bible, there is a great gap of time. Because we go from him being adopted into the home as a baby boy of Pharaoh's daughter to verse 11. He's grown up. And Acts 7 tells us that at this point, he's 40 years old. So he's 40 years old in verse 11. Verse 11 says this, One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people And looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together, and he said to them, to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely this thing is known When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by the well. From all human perspective, Moses failed. He was a failure. At this point in his life, failure. I don't know. We don't know exactly Did he know, did he have a sense from God that he was to be the one in some way used by God to deliver his people from slavery? We don't know. We do know from verse 11 that he knew the Hebrews were his people, even though he was raised as an Egyptian. Perhaps more evidence of the fact that he perhaps knew that he was a part of God's redemptive plan for his people is that he took action to bring justice, to, to bring about uh, the way that things should be as he saw it. And, but he knew it was wrong because what did he do? He looked this way and that. Make sure no one's looking before he struck the Egyptian dead. 
And even further evidence that he knew it was wrong, he put him in the sand to, to cover up what he had done. And then when he realized, oh no, I've been found out, what did he do? He fled. He didn't trust in his God to protect him from the king. He said, I've got to go. And when Moses was trying to forget his people, God was still at work in the process of redeeming his people, even through a failure like Moses. Moses flees to Midian. That's not close. It's a long way away, and he's content to stay there. He marries a pagan woman there. It's where you begin to see God is bringing in other nations, even into the story this early on. And he's content being a shepherd on the hills, far from his people, until God shows up. Yet again, By the way, the time from when he killed the Egyptian to the time that God appears to him in the burning bush is another 40 years. God is at work in our perceived silence and what we perceive to be silence. He's at work in the silence. He's at work in the bitterness. He's at work in the reeds of our lives. And he's at work in our failures. And where do we land with all this? We land in verses 23 through 25 of chapter 2, the way that chapter 2 ends, says this, During those many days the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. I want you to notice, we don't see anywhere that they're crying to God. But God hears. Verse 24, And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. God saw the people of Israel. And God knew. Friends, listen. When your circumstances are telling you something about God that the scriptures are not, lean in to the truth of the scriptures. Lean in and say, oh God, give me faith to believe that you are, and this is who God is. Don't miss this. God is the God who hears. He is the God who hears. And not only does he hear, he hears even when we don't know what to say. And we don't see that just here in Exodus. We see that even in the New Testament when God tells us that those who have believed upon Christ, that we have received the Holy Spirit to dwell within us, the Spirit of God himself. And what is one of the roles of this amazing helper, this Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity? Romans 8.26, just before that Romans 8.28 that I said earlier, says this, the groanings, oh, sorry, likewise the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. He's a God that not only hears our groanings, he even intercedes and interprets and makes clear our groanings at the footstool, at the feet of God Almighty. He's not only the God who hears our groaning, oftentimes he's the one who prompts our groanings. And the things that we don't know how to even say, he says, I got you. Just groan. Just those guttural, oh God, please. That's the spirit at work. He hears. 
He tells us, too, that he's the God who remembers. He remembers his covenant. For Moses, it was, he remembers his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I haven't for, it's not a remember like, oh, yeah, oh my, oh, my goodness, I forgot about that. I got to get back to the covenant. Yeah, oh, thanks for reminding me. No, 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 it's, I never forgot. I never forgot. I remember, and I am faithful, even when you are faithless. He's a God who sees. Oh, he sees us. He sees everything. He sees all things. He sees the things that we can't see. He sees to the very depths of who we are. He sees to the dark closets and hallways of our hearts that we have shut long ago that we don't think anyone can see, especially and hopefully not God, but he sees it. He sees it all, and he says, not only do I see it, I'm still here. I'm still the God who's near. I'm still the God who hears. I'm still the God who remembers. I'm still the God who sees you, and I don't condemn you. I'm the God who knows. And this is not an intellectual knowledge that's being used here. This is the Hebrew word yada that was used last week in our sermon that gets to this very intimate knowledge. It's the know that is used in Scripture when it talks about that Adam knew his wife, that Abraham knew Sarah. It's this intimate, even sexual knowledge, which I know is weird to think about with God, but it's just this getting at to the depths of how much God knows us. I don't just know about you. I know you. I know you better than you know yourself, and I am not going anywhere and I'm at work in your life. I'm at work. As we move to the table, probably the best way to set this up is to go all the way to Hebrews towards the end of the New Testament, reflecting back on this story of Moses. It tells us about the great faith that Moses' parents and that Moses had. Listen to what it says. Hebrews chapter 11, starting in verse 23, says, By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. And listen to what's said next about Moses. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Listen, he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth of greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. For he was looking to the reward. Now we're gonna see this played out as we continue in this book of Exodus, all these ways in which Moses exercised this kind of faith, albeit imperfectly. But did you catch that? He considered the wealth, the worth, the value of Jesus as of greater worth than the best this world has to offer. The great first century Jewish historian Josephus, he tells us, and whether he's right on this, I'm, I don't know, because there's debate over which Pharaoh was it, but Josephus says this, and if he's right, this is profound. He says that the Pharaoh that Moses was under at this time, when he was put into the basket, into the ark, was a Pharaoh that only had that one daughter that we were introduced into, to into the story and that she was barren. She had no children. That's why she was so eager to adopt Moses, which means, if true, that Moses was an heir to the throne. And if that's true, and even if it's not true, he's still in the royalty of the greatest kingdom on earth, and he said, I don't want that. 
Because the worth of Jesus is so much better. And you go, well, Jesus hadn't even come yet. What, what do you mean? How did he? Because there was a faith in this God that he knew was weaving something together that there would be one who would come who is of greater worth than even the very treasures of the greatest kingdom on earth. And what do you and I most want oftentimes if we're honest? If we're really gut honest, we'd say, I want the treasures of this earth. Give them to me. And then I would be at peace. And then I would be uh, able to do everything that I've ever wanted to do. And what the Bible says is, no, there is one who is of much greater worth. See him. Know him. Move towards him because he's there. He's at work. And his arms are open wide. And is that not what we do when we come to the table? That we're coming, declaring once and again when our hearts have been so wayward to chase after the treasures of, the, of this earth to come back and say, oh no, but you, oh Jesus, you are better. You are of greater worth. You are of greater value than anything else. We come to this place, this sacrament, this means of grace to us by God himself to say, oh Jesus, I wanna dine on you. It is only through your broken body and through your shed blood that I have life and have it abundantly. And so we come as a people who are broken. What this table tells us is that when we are convinced that God is, it not, is not at work in the silence, when, that he's not at work in the bitterness, that he's not at work in the reeds, that he's not at work in our failures. This table, this Jesus, this broken body, this poured out blood says, I am for you. And I am near and I am worth everything your life can offer. It's an invitation to all, but let me give a warning from scripture. If you would not identify as someone who follows Jesus, who's believed upon him by faith, I would encourage you, don't take from this table because the scripture warns us and says, when you do that, you eat and drink judgment upon yourself. Furthermore, if you're one who would say, I am a follower of Christ, but I have been in a long period of my life now of unrepentance, then I would say, don't take as well. Use this time to pray and say, oh God, soften my heart and lead me to repentance and faith in you. But don't miss this. This table is for sinners. This table is for those who can't get it together. This table is for failures. This table is for you and me. And one of the things that God does, we believe, according to the scriptures, that he is present in a mysterious spiritual way, not in the elements, but in a way that nourishes us when we take of the table to remind us yet again of his goodness, his faithfulness, and his value. And so we come. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Sermon Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and to find other sermons from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.